Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Howdy, howdy, everyone, and believe it or not, here we are, finally, in the last chapter of the first book of seven of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry. So here we go with chapter 32, Oliver Cromwell and Freemasonry. Three fables have been used to show a connection between Freemasonry and the royal objects of the Stuarts. One made it the purpose of the followers of James II to use the institution as a means of restoring that king to the throne. A second claimed the Jesuits were to employ it for the same purpose, as well as for the re-establishment of the Roman Catholic religion in England. The third, and most unlikely of these fables, is that which credits the invention of Freemasonry as a secret society to Oliver Cromwell, who is supposed to have employed it as a political means to aid him in taking the throne from Charles I, in the setting aside of the line of royal heirs to the kingdom, and the founding of a republic on its ruins, with himself for its head. The first and second of these fables have already been discussed. The consideration of the third will be the subject of the present chapter. The theory that Freemasonry was instituted by Oliver Cromwell was not at first received like the other two by any large portion of the fraternity. It was the invention of a single mind, and was first made public in the year 1746 by the Abbey Laridon, who presented his views in a work entitled Le Franc-Mécon's Écrasse, a book which Kloss, a bibliographer, says is the armory from which all the enemies of Freemasonry have since derived their weapons of abuse. The claims of Laridon are noted for the absolute neglect of all historical authority and for the bold guesses which are presented to the reader in the place of facts. His strongest argument for the truth of his theory is that the purposes of the Masonic institution and of the political course of Cromwell are the same, namely, to sustain the doctrines of liberty and equality among mankind. Rejecting all the claims to great age that have been urged in behalf of the institution, Laridon thinks that it was in England where the Order of Freemasonry first saw the light of day, and that to Cromwell it owes its origin. This theory, he claims, with what truth we know not, to have received from a certain Grand Master with whose wisdom and sincerity he was well acquainted. But even this authority, he says, would not have been sufficient to secure his belief had it not afterward been confirmed by his reading of the history of the English protector and his studies of the morals and the laws of the order where he detected at every step the contact of Cromwell. The object of Cromwell, as it has already been said, was the organization of a secret society whose members would be bound by the most solemn ties of fraternity. This body of men was to unite the various religions and political sects which prevailed in England in the reign of Charles I to the prosecution of his views. These were equally opposed to the supreme control by a king and to the power of the parliament. Cromwell therefore planned by means of a secret society to destroy both and raise himself to the head of affairs. In the working out this plan, Cromwell went ahead with his usual care and skill. He first submitted the outline to several of his most intimate friends, such as Algernon Sidney, Harrington Monk, and Fairfax, and he held with them several private meetings. 
but it was not until the year 1648 that he began to take the necessary steps for bringing matters to a head. That year, at a dinner which he gave to a large number of his friends, he unfolded his designs to the company. When his guests, among whom were many members of Parliament, both Presbyterians and Independents, the two rival religious parties of the day, had been well fed, the host carefully led the conversation to the subject of the unhappy condition of England. Told with deep regret how the unfortunate nation had suffered sad conflicts of politics and religion, and he declared that it was a disgrace that men so intelligent as those who then heard him did not make an effort to put an end to these distracting contests of party. Scarcely had Cromwell ceased to speak when Ireton, his son-in-law, who had been prepared for the occasion, arose, and seconding the sentiments of his leader, proceeded to show the absolute need for the public good of an agreement and union of the many contending parties which were then dividing the country. He claimed with fervor that he would not himself hesitate to give his fortune and his life to remedy such troubles, and to show to the people the road they ought to take, to relieve themselves from the load which was crushing them and to break the iron rod under which they were groaning. But to do this, it was first necessary, he insisted, to destroy every power and influence which had betrayed the nation. Then, turning to Cromwell, he begged him to explain his views on this important matter and to suggest the cure for these evils. Cromwell did not hesitate to accept the task which had, it would seem without his previous agreement, been given to him. Addressing his guests in that mysterious style which he was accustomed to use, and the object of which was to confuse their minds and make them more ready to receive his boldest plans, he explained the obligation of a worship of God, the necessity to repel force by force, and to deliver mankind from misrule and slavery. He then concluded his speech, exciting the curiosity of his hearers by telling them that he knew a method by which they could succeed in this great enterprise— restore peace to England, and rescue it from the depth of misery into which it had plunged. This method, he added, if made known to the world, would win the favor of mankind and secure a glorious memory for its authors in the pages of history. The address was well managed and well received. All of his guests earnestly asked him to make this wonderful plan known to them, but Cromwell would not give way at once to their pleas, but modestly replying that so important an enterprise was beyond the strength of any one man to accomplish, and he would rather go on suffering the evils of a bad government than, in seeking to remove them by the efforts of his friends, to subject them to dangers which they might be unwilling to endure. Cromwell well understood the type and temper of every man who sat at that table with him. He knew that by this artful address he would still further excite their curiosity and awaken their hopes. So it was that, after many repeated pleadings, he finally agreed to explain his scheme, on the condition that all the guests should take a solemn oath to reveal the plan to no one, and to consider it after it had been proposed with absolutely an open mind. This was agreed to by all present. The oath of secrecy was taken. Cromwell then threw himself on his knees, and extending his hands toward heaven, called on God and all the celestial powers to witness the innocence of his heart and the purity of his intentions. All this the Abbey Laradon relates with a fullness of detail which we could expect only from an eyewitness of the event. All this made a deep impression on his guests and prepared them for further demands upon their faith. Cromwell now announced that the precise moment for disclosing the plan had not arrived, and that an inspiration from heaven, which he had just received, warned him not to make it known until four days had elapsed. His guests, though impatient to receive a knowledge of the important secret, were compelled to hold and check their desires, and to agree to meet again at the appointed time, and at a place which was named. On the day set for the purpose, all the guests went to a house in King Street, where the meeting took place, and Cromwell proceeded to develop his plan. 
And here, the Abilaridon becomes very free and full in the many minute details with which he describes what must have been a scene born of a lively imagination. Cromwell began by taking the guests into a dark room. Here he prepared their minds for what was going to occur by a long prayer, in the course of which he gave them to understand that he was in touch with the spirits of the blessed. After this he told them that his design was to found a society whose only objects would be to render due worship to God and to restore England the peace for which it so earnestly longed. But this project, he added, required every prudence and the greatest care to secure its success. Then, taking an incense pot in his hands, he filled the room with the most subtle fumes so as to produce a favorable attitude in the company to hear what he had further to say. He told them at the reception of a new associate it was necessary that he should pass through a certain ceremony, to which all of them, without exception, would have to submit. He asked them whether they were willing to subject themselves to this ceremony. To this inquiry, everyone gave his consent. Five assistants were then chosen by Cromwell to fill as many places and to perform special services. These assistants were a master, two wardens, a secretary, and an orator. Having made these arrangements, the visitors were taken to another room, which had been prepared for the purpose, and where there was a picture representing the ruins of King Solomon's temple. From this place they were conducted to another, and being blindfolded, were at last given the secrets of initiation. Cromwell delivered an address on religion and politics, the purport of which was to show to the warring sects of Presbyterians and Independents, members of both being present, the necessity for the public good of giving up all their useless disputes, of becoming united, and of changing the bitter hatred which then inspired them for a tender love and charity toward each other. The eloquence of their artful leader had the desired effect. Both sects joined with the army in the establishment of a secret society founded on the professed principles of love of God and the support of liberty and equality among men, but whose real design was to advance the projects of Cromwell by destroying the rule of the king and the founding of a commonwealth of which he should be the head. Unfortunately, for the completed building of this rather interesting fable, the abbey has not given free rein to his vivid imagination by letting us have the full details of the form of initiation. He has, however, in various parts of his book, alluded to so much of it as to enable us to learn that the instructions were of a symbolic character and that the Temple of Solomon was the leading symbol. This temple had been built by divine command to be the holy home of religion and as a place peculiarly prepared and dedicated to the performance of its impressive ceremonies. After several years of greatness and glory, the temple had been destroyed by a powerful army and the people who had been there accustomed to worship were loaded with chains and carried in captivity to Babylon. Years of slavery passed, and then a pagan prince, chosen as the instrument of divine mercy, had permitted the captives to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple in its first splendor. In this allegory, says the abbey, the Freemasons of Cromwell found the exact pattern of their society. The temple in its first splendor is a reminder of the early state of man. The religion and the ceremonies which were there practiced are nothing else than an expression of that universal law engraved on every heart, whose principles are found in the ideas of justice and charity to which all men are obliged. The destruction of this temple and the captivity and slavery of its worshippers are symbols of the pride and ambition which have produced political misery among men. The unpitying host of Assyrians who destroyed the temple and led the people into captivity are the kings, princes, and magistrates whose power has trodden down nations with countless evils. Lastly, the chosen people charged with the duty of rebuilding the temple are the Freemasons, who are to restore men to their original dignity. Cromwell divided the order which he founded into three classes or degrees. 
The third, or master's degree, was of course not without its hieramic legend, but the explanation of its symbolism was very different from that which is given at the present day. The legend is thus explained by the abbey. The disorder of the workmen and the confusion at the temple were intended to make a deep impression upon the mind of the candidate and to show him that the loss of liberty and equality represented by the death of Hiram is the cause of all the evils which affect mankind. While men lived peacefully in the asylum of the Temple of Liberty, they enjoyed constant happiness. But when they have been surprised and attacked by tyrants who have reduced them to a state of slavery, this is symbolized by the destruction of the temple, which it is the duty of the master masons to rebuild, that is to say, to restore that liberty and equality which had been lost. Cromwell appointed missionaries or agents, says Laridon, who spread the order not only over England, but even into Scotland and Ireland, where many lodges were put to work. Members of the order or society were first called Freemasons. Afterwards, the name was repeatedly changed to suit that political conditions of the times, and they were called Levellers, then Independents, afterward Fifth Monarchy Men, and finally resumed their original title, which they have kept to the present day. Such is the fable of the Cromwellian origin of Freemasonry. We owe it entirely to the inventive genius of the Abbey Laridon. Yet it is not wholly a story of the imagination, but is really founded on a curious and striking mixture of the facts of history. Edmund Ludlow was an honorable man who took at first a leading part in the Civil War, which ended in the beheading of Charles I, the passing away of kingly powers, and the establishment of the Commonwealth. He was throughout his whole life a true and constant Republican, and was as much opposed to the political schemes of Cromwell for that leader's own advancement to power as he was to the improper use of government by the king. In the language of the editor of his memoirs, he was an enemy to all arbitrary government, though gilded over with the most specious pretenses, and not only disapproved with the usurpation of Cromwell, but would have opposed him with as much vigor as he had done the king if all occasions of that nature had not been cut off by the extraordinary jealousy or vigilance of the usurpers. Ludlow was born in 1617, died in 1693, joined the Life Guards at outbreak of civil war, elected to English Parliament in 1645, signed the death warrant of the king, Charles I, in 1649, Lieutenant General of Horse in Ireland in 1651, and on the dying of Ireton, the chief command fell into his charge, but he would not submit to the will of the protector Cromwell. Having unsuccessfully labored in fighting the influence of Cromwell with the army, Ludlow gave up public affairs and retired to his home in Essex, where he remained in quiet until the restoration of Charles II. Then he fled to Switzerland, where he resided until his death. During his exile, Ludlow occupied his leisure hours in the writing of his memoirs, a work of great value as a faithful record of the troublous period in which he lived and of which he was himself an important factor. These memoirs have given a full account of the trickery by which Cromwell secured the help of the army and destroyed the influence of the parliament. The work was published at Veve in Switzerland under the title of Memoirs of Edmund Ludlow, Esquire, Lieutenant General of the Tories in Ireland, one of the Council of State, and a member of the Parliament which began on November 3, 1640. There are two volumes, with a supplement containing copies of important papers. The edition from which we quote bears the date of 1698. Another edition was published in 1894. The Abbe Laredan appears to have been well acquainted with the memoirs. He undoubtedly read them carefully, for he has made many extracts from them as he has repeatedly referred to Ludlow as his authority. 
Unfortunately for the Abbey's intelligence, or far more probably for his honesty, he has always applied what Ludlow said of the plots of Cromwell for the building up of a new political party as if it were meant to describe the forming of a Masonic secret society. Neither Ludlow nor any other writer refers to the existence of Freemasonry as we now have it and as it is described by the Abbey Laridon in the time of the English Civil Wars. Even the operative Freemasons were not at that period greatly encouraged for, says Norfolk, no regard to science and elegance was to be expected from the sour minds of the puritanical masters of the nation between the fall of Charles I and the restoration of his son. The Guild of Freemasons, the only form in which the order was known until the 18th century, was during the Commonwealth discouraged and architecture was neglected. In the clash of war, the arts and peace are silent. Cromwell was, it is true, engaged in many political schemes, but he had other and more effective means to gain his ends than those of Freemasonry, of whose existence at that time, except as a guild of workmen, we have no historical evidence. But there are many historical facts, on the other hand, to contradict its probability. The theory, therefore, that Freemasonry owes its origin to Oliver Cromwell, who invented it as a means of forwarding his designs toward obtaining the supreme power of the state, is merely a fable. We find it to be the invention of a priestly foe of the institution, and devised by him plainly to give it to a political appearance. By this trick, like his successors, Beruel and Robison, he sought to injure it. Brothers Kloss and Woodford agree that the work of the Abbey Laridon is best described as a lie. Thorey points out the Abbey is also misleading in trying to convey the impression that his book is a continuation of the one by Perrault, but the latter work is of an altogether different tone and quality to the better jibes of Laridon. And that concludes Book 1 and the final chapter of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Prehistoric Masonry. So join in next week and we'll crack open book number two. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.